This week's episode is sponsored by me. As many of you know, I travel full-time and am also an author. Twice a year, I open up my coaching program to help new authors write their first book. This year, I'm adding a second program to writers who happen to be stuck in the messy middle and are struggling to finish their book, no matter which one they're on. It's a very personalized coaching program, and I only take in 12 participants. Enrollment opens soon, so if you are a new writer or a seasoned writer who is struggling to get to the end, this just might be a good fit. Head over to my website, www.elizabethbougeret.com, for all the details and an application if you're ready to take the next step. That's www.elizabethbougeret.com. She requested to wear her white wedding dress. Hundreds crowded the streets to watch the processional from Magazine Street to the main square, where another large crowd waited. This was an anticipated event. Lavinia Fisher pulled away from her guards and walked up the steps to the galley of her own accord. She grabbed the waiting noose and slipped it over her head, tightening the knot. She looked out over the crowd as every eye was on her. She paused and then said, If anyone has a message for the devil, Tell me now, for I shall be seeing him shortly. And then she jumped from the stand, the rope-pulling taunt snapping her neck. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. It is one of the most notable historic sites in Charleston, South Carolina, being built in 1802, but it is perhaps better known today for all of its haunts. And of those haunts, Lavinia Fisher was arguably the most famous. She and her husband ran a boarding house of sorts just outside the city limits of Charleston. Six miles, as a matter of fact, and they cleverly named their business the Six Mile House. It's rumored that they, in fact, ran two houses. One was supposedly used as a safe house for outlaws who came through that way. The story goes that the couple would host travelers on their journey to stop for a meal, a good night's rest, and perhaps a drink or two. Lavinia would offer her guests some tea and entertain them with lively, flirtatious conversation. The tea, however, was laced with oleander. Her guest, depending on how much he would ingest, would start to feel sluggish, perhaps dizzy. His vision would become more blurry as the stomach pains set in, followed by violent bouts of vomiting. If he is lucky, which sometimes meant that he was poor, he would faint straight away, feeling only lethargic the next day. Others would never recover. Once their patient-slash-guest was safely tucked into their bed, provided they still had a pulse, a magical lever was pulled, dropping the victim to a room in the cellar where they would be chopped up and buried about the yard never to be heard from again. The rumors began to accumulate of missing persons and highway robbing gang. It wasn't until traveler John Peoples came to the boarding house requesting a room. He was told that the rooms were all taken, but he was invited to have some supper and tea. Peoples, not a fan of tea, but not wanting to be rude, accepted the invitation and tossed the tea out when his hostess wasn't looking. Lavinia turned on the charm and chatted the evening away, finding out as much as she needed to know, and suddenly remembered there was an opening. He accepted, but just before climbing into bed, he felt uncomfortable with the events of the evening and decided to sleep in the wooden chair instead of the bed. In the middle of the night, he was startled awake by the sound of the bed collapsing, revealing a lower floor. Terrified, he jumped out the window and hightailed it to Charleston to seek out the authorities. 
The police had several reports and rumors persisted around this couple, but there was never any evidence, just feelings that something was amiss. With John Peoples' eyewitness account, the couple was finally arrested and taken to jail. While they were arrested on the claim that they murdered between 20 and 150 travelers, I know, quite the gap. In actuality, no bodies were found on the premises. Soon after their arrest, the Six Mile House and everything in and around it was mysteriously burned to the ground. Lavinia is claimed to be the first female serial killer, and if you've spent any time here with me digging around my bag of bones, you know that claim has been challenged several times. But we can give her the first female serial killer in South Carolina, if that helps. At their trial, they both pleaded not guilty, but the jury found them guilty of highway robbery, which at that time was punishable by the death penalty. Lavinia Fisher did not believe that the governor of South Carolina would go through with hanging a woman, not a married woman for sure. Quote, An old law in South Carolina says that you couldn't hang a married woman, Randy Johnson of Bulldog Tours says, after her husband was hanged, they brought her up. Well, she's single again. Maybe she was hoping a man would offer to marry her again. It didn't happen. End quote. The pastor asks her if she would like to give her soul to God. She merely smiles coyly at him, still believing a pardon would come. Before long, as the crowd waits patiently, a sheriff rides up, telling her emphatically, that a pardon is not coming. She is incensed, and the pastor asks again, Would you like to give your soul to the Lord? Resigned to her fate, she sneers at the pastor and hisses at the crowd, uttering her famous final words. If you've got a message for the devil, give it to me, because I'll be seeing him shortly. Now, historical documents say that her final words were, quote, Cease! I will have none of it! Save your words for others that want them. If you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. End quote. Not as colorful, perhaps, but still haunting. Quote, She's still here. Many people feel her presence. They will feel tingles on their skin. People hear her screams. They'll also, at different times, be scratched. Lavinia is famous for scratching people. We have photographs of people who have shared them with us over the years, of people who have been scratched, Randy elaborated. John Fisher, a story says that he actually escaped from jail by digging a hole through the brick, tabby, and stucco and lowering himself down outside the building with a bedsheet and his clothing. He had just made it to the outside when the fabric ladder broke, leaving his bride inside unable to escape. The story goes that he turned himself back in, giving up his freedom and ultimately his life, so his wife wouldn't be alone. Not buying it. If we've learned anything about the conditions of the old jail, which I am about to expound on, I feel pretty confident in assuming that they were not given any sheets or extra clothing at any time. Just my opinion. I could be wrong, but there is also no documentation of his escape attempt either. And then one final piece of this legend, once she was dead, she was cut down and buried in a potter's field, which was eventually built up. For this reason, many say she has no reason to be haunting the jail, but her legend tells it like this. Man would not pardon her of her crimes. She would not let God pardon her of her sins. And the devil, he didn't want any part of her attitude, so upon her death, he locked the gates to hell. Now she's all dressed up with nowhere to go. She makes her way back to her last known address, the Old City Jail, where she is seen peering out of three different windows, scratching visitors and screaming, probably at the other ghosts for being in her way or something. Either way, she makes herself known. If you're interested in more bed and breakfast that took on the whole Hotel California approach, Check out episode 23, A Cozy Little Travel Lodge of Murder. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. 
I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money back guarantee and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. The grounds that the historic Old City Jail sits on was set aside for public use in the 1620s, but they were originally marshland. With the development of the city of Charlestown, the extra dirt was brought to this area. And due to the poor and astounding number of immigrants that made their way to the area, there was a lot of death due to the dreadful living conditions and any number of diseases that were known to wipe out hundreds of people at a time. The grounds had to be used as burials. Side note, it wouldn't be the first time or the last that Charleston has used bodies of the dead to expand its buildable parameters. By the time the 1800s rolled around with enough bodies and dirt, it was ready to be cultivated, so to speak. So yes, the jail was built on top of a so-called cemetery. It's off to a great start to begin its haunted history. During the time the building was erected, they wanted it to resemble a castle, a big, old, hulking, menacing castle. However, in those times, if you built with brick, it was signified that you were poor, and South Carolina did not have the means to create huge concrete stone blocks, but at no time would they admit that they were poor. So they spun a bit of theater magic on it. While today the building looks creepy chic with stucco covering most of the exterior, allowing some brick to show through, but it's actually evidence that they covered the poor man's brick with plaster and had workers come in to draw in lines to make it look like the huge castle-like stones were used. The building was used as the city jail from 1802 to 1939, and within that window, a lot of history has passed through its doors. The first floor was reserved for the white-collar criminals, those who committed petty crimes, or those who had plenty of money to soften their punishment. The lower floors were often cooler and downright luxurious compared to the next level up. They were housed next to the administrative offices, the kitchen, and the morgue. A portion of the second floor and third floor was reserved for the warden's living quarters. Inside the two tallest turrets on either side of the first addition to the original prison hold spiral staircases that were the only access to reach the second and third levels. At these entrances were the warden's quarters. From 1911 to 1937, the warden, William Bennett, his wife, and seven of their nine children would call those rooms home their living quarters separated by only a wall from the inmates on death row. And by the way, there are some great pictures if you want to see what I'm attempting to explain over at www.ragtagnetwork.com forward slash bag of bones podcast. The second floor also housed the holding cells. These were for people who were waiting trial, waiting for conviction, sleeping it off, and even for those waiting to testify. You heard right. So, say you did the good deed and approached the police. Officer, I saw it all, and I'm willing to testify. They'd say, great, I'm just going to put you in this holding cell until the court date comes up, so you don't have a chance to change your mind or disappear. And they would have to wait there, being treated like a criminal, until the court case came to trial. These large open rooms could also be used for criminals of lesser crimes. These rooms usually had one window, but if you were lucky, you might get the room with two windows. 
petty thievery, gambling, debtors, seduction. If they found a judge willing to save their life and just serve jail time, they would be sent here. But make no mistake that when these rooms became too full, these petty criminals would be sent to hang out with the more sinister criminals on the third floor. The third floor is reserved for the worst of the worst, death row. This is where you find your murderers, rapists, horse robbers, arsonists. Depending on the judge, sometimes it didn't take much to receive the death sentence back in the day. These criminals would be sent to the third floor to wait out their execution or to see if they survive their quote-unquote punishment. Mm, More on that later. Even though the walls were thick, the layers of brick, tabby, and plaster were pretty easy to dig through. In 1822, due to the far too many escaped prisoners, the architect Robert Mills, who is best known for designing the Washington Monument, added some reinforcements. Iron sheeting was added along the walls of the entire third floor, which became known as their death row. This may have prevented escape, but it also, in the heat of a South Carolina summer, turned the rooms into an oven. And of course, during the winter, the rooms were freezing cold. The solitary confinement cells were also located on the third floor. Solitary confinement meant a little something different for the old jail residents. It had nothing to do with you being in a room alone, per se. Their version of solitary confinement was called the iron cell, or the iron coffin. You were put into a large cell with nine other iron coffins. Picture a large room with an iron cell inside the room, like an animal's cage. Inside this cell would be ten individual iron coffins, six feet tall, three feet wide, and a door that would close just in front of your face. There would be a narrow opening that would allow you to look out at your fellow inmates. This was also your only intake of fresh air. And here, you would stand for a minimum of four days. There was no way to sit. You defecated on yourself. With the room made up of solid walls, also sheeted with iron, you can imagine the temperatures hitting the triple digits. On the fourth floor, this is where they housed the single women and children, usually the women who were incarcerated for petty crimes, prostitution, or mostly because they couldn't pay their debts. If they had children, they would be housed on the fourth floor with their mother. They figured that the children were hardier and would be able to handle the heat better. The children would do various chores or run errands for the prison to help pay down the family's debt. Even pregnant criminals, and I use that term loosely, were jailed on this uppermost floor. Apparently, many babies were born within the walls of the jail, but none lived past three months. In 1866, an earthquake that ranked a whopping 6.7 on the Richter scale hit Charlestown. The prisoners of the time begged for escape from the building, fearing for their life. Many were set free out into the courtyard. The two-story octagonal tower tumbled to the ground, and the fourth floor also shook down to rubble. The prisoners took advantage of the mound of bricks to scale the 20-foot walls to escape to freedom. I couldn't find if there were any who died as a result of the earthquake, but knowing that the women and children were housed on the fourth floor, maybe it's better for me not to know. Besides, the prison was doing a great job of killing off its inmate without the assistance of an earthquake. It was estimated that the average lifespan of a prisoner above the first floor was about three weeks. The fourth floor or the tower was not replaced, but the same number of inmates were still piling in. You'd think the stories about the living conditions alone would make everyone want to be law-abiding citizens. On the premises were also livestock pens that were used to hold 300 or more slaves until they were taken to the city's slave market to be sold. These pens were at the rear of the courtyard, out of sight, out of mind, and families would be held there in tight, cramped quarters and treated like livestock. At times they would be brought out and exercised, 
but for the most part they were not fed or given much more than water until their day had come to go to the auction block. Then they were given food, had their faces washed, hair combed, and the men would be oiled down and any whipping scars would be filled with wax or soap. This was separate from the goings-on of the prison and, from what I understand, did not come from their budget, but that of the slave traders. Side note, it is believed that over 40% of the slaves brought to America had come through Charleston, South Carolina. If you're curious to hear Bag of Bones take on that time period, check out episode 37, titled The Flesh Trade. Following this quick break, the next portion of the episode has to deal with some of the most inhumane and vile conditions that were forced on human inmates. So, if that's going to ruin your sleep or your lunch, you might want to skip this next section. But if you're ready, grab your handkerchief to cover your face, because we're going in. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The massive four-story medieval-style building has two-foot-thick walls and high windows with bars covering them of solid iron built into the wall so they could not be removed or sawed through. A huge four-foot-thick, 20-foot-tall wall surrounded the jail and courtyard. The gallows were present in the courtyard just outside the back door where the hangings were done on site and everyone could see them. After the earthquake, the walls were topped off at 15 feet, and then in 1939, once the building was closed, the brick fence was lowered to 11 feet. Since then, it's at a non-menacing 4 feet. The floor on the ground level would have been made of stone. While keeping the base level a bit cooler in the summer, not very comfortable to sleep on, and just as disgusting an environment as any other floor. The flooring on the upper levels were originally made of wood. So, on these floors, straw or wood shavings would be spread throughout. And this was their only source of... comfort? Let me back up a second. I'm sure this goes without saying, but the jail did not have any running water or indoor plumbing. Maybe there was a bucket to um, collect human waste, but I promise you... It was not changed often or cleaned. So, seeing as how the straw or wood shavings were both to sop up excrement and an excellent breeding ground for lice, I don't think I'd be snuggling up in that lice anytime soon. They say you could smell the building for miles away. Ugh, and you know those wood floors had to be absorbing all of that stench. Ew, gross. There was no glass or screens on the window to protect the inmates from the weather, and if you've ever set foot in Charleston, South Carolina, you are familiar with the stifling humidity, plus the occasional tropical storm that sends rain down at pelting speed. Not to mention, there was zero deterrent for insects. Flying and biting bugs and other vermin could scale the walls with ease. On those occasions that storms would rage around the prison and the rain would stream into the prison windows, you might be thinking, yay, some fresh water, they could rinse off. But the water had nowhere to go. It would collect on the floor, and the more it would rain, the higher the water level would rise, meaning that everything on the floors would rise with it. The bile, the vomit, the blood, the urine, soaking your feet, up your pant legs, or dresses, because without a fourth floor there was no segregation. Men and women were tossed into the same cells, and I'm sure I don't have to spell out what additional abuses that brings on. The prisoners would have to slosh around in the septic water around their feet until it would evaporate, or if you were on the third floor, it would seep through the floorboards onto those on the second floor, and so on. 
Being in the first floor cells ain't sounding so great now, is it? In the early years of the prison, the first 65-75 years had even more atrocities to deal with. The crime and punishment laws were fierce. It would have been better for those found guilty of their crimes to be hung rather than what they had to go through. Not only did the inmates have to deal with disgusting accommodations, they would also have open, gaping wounds. Joy, an old jail historian and tour guide, tells us why. Quote, When this jail first opened, they didn't lock you away and try to reform you. They didn't lock you away for years and years and years. They would give you somewhere between a two and a six month sentence. During that six month sentence, they would torture you as ordered by a judge. End quote. For clarity's sake, around that time, a judge had three things other than hanging that he could choose from for their punishment. The first one, cropping. This was when they would chop off bits and pieces of your body, like the fingertips, tops of your ears, maybe the whole ear, the tip of your nose, and so on. Another one was branding. This would be the practice that was brought over from our beginnings in England. It was a form of punishment that would tell the court if the defendant was a repeat offender and what the offense was. The first letter of the crime you had been convicted of would be seared into the flesh with a red-hot poker. T for theft, M for murder, F for felon, and P for perjure, which means you have lied to the court and couldn't be trusted. You sure didn't want that one. It used to be on the forehead or the cheek, but it backfired because it would prevent the convict from ever finding work and make him a permanent criminal in their minds. It was then seared into the thumb for minor infractions on the top of the right hand or on the palm, which is why you raise your right hand in a court of law. It's so the judge can see if you have anything branded on your hand resulting from prior convictions. The third option was beating, whipping, flogging. These were probably the most common and would take place at the workhouse, which was located just over the wall from the jail grounds. Ropes were suspended from a higher beam in which your wrists were placed into small nooses at the end of each rope and your feet would be locked into the ground or the floor with heavy iron cuffs or a solid box. They would then pull the rope, forcing your arms up in the air over your head, sometimes dislocating them from their sockets. Joy would tell her tour group, quote, Once the skin on your back was as taut as possible, they would pull out a cat and nine tails and rake it across your skin, end quote. The tool she mentions is a more devious version of the whip. Picture a whip with its wooden handle attached to nine strands of braided leather instead of one. Each strand had knots tied into them. The knots were called blood knots. If we stopped right there, these punishments would result in long welts across the person's back or legs. The knots would create deep bruises and blood blisters. But some would also make the punishment even worse. Inside the knots could also be pieces of broken glass, metal, rocks, or pottery to ensure the skin would split. The object was not to kill the prisoner, at least not right away, but to torture and set an example for other inmates. Prisoners were assigned a certain number of lashes per day depending on their strength and stature. Oh yeah, and maybe for the severity of the crime. And before they would return to your cell, they would pour salt water on the open wounds. This was not done for antiseptic purposes, as I'm sure you have surmised. The prisoner was then drugged back to the old jail and thrown back into his cell, his overcrowded, filthy, disease-ridden, vermin-infested cell. As I'm describing these atrocities to you, I think... I might need to explain further of what these accommodations looked like. If you're imagining what a jail looks like today, that would be incorrect. Today, the cells are for two people, maybe four, with long hallways of cells on either side of a corridor. 
The old city jail started as one central rectangular building, and then an additional octagonal building was added on. There were hallways, but their doors would open up into vacant rooms, and the mm, guests were kept inside by thick 100-pound iron doors. The third floor had a second set of screen doors to encourage them to stay put. At first, everyone was just shoved into one room, and that was that. At some point, probably due to all of the violence and infighting, they started adding cells inside the rooms. So now picture a large room with square iron cells side by side with a narrow walking space between. For the lesser crimes, as I think I mentioned, the rooms were left as open spaces, but the more violent the crimes and then the solitary confinement, the rooms were further broken down into smaller cells. And in the courtyard of the jail, more prisoners were held out of doors. The building was built to house a maximum of 150 people. On average, it could easily run near the 250 mark, but during the Civil War, it was recorded that 450 to 500 people were crammed into that same space. And on top of that, 600 Union prisoners of war were kept on the grounds. During the time the jail was used as a prisoner of war camp, it was so crowded, it was standing room only. Literally. There were so many people crammed into every available space, they were sometimes shoulder to shoulder with no space to lay down, sit down, or even rest. Joy says the floor would have had straw and wood shavings, as I mentioned, but also have, quote, human feces, vomit, urine, blood, lice, roaches, rats, bats, mosquitoes, maggots, you name it, and inside one of those holding cells, they would have packed about 40 people, end quote. Early in its POW days, the courtyard started out with tents, but those were quickly destroyed to be used for bandages since there was no medical care for the wounded soldiers and whatever else. The tents were never replaced. Rainwater would be collected in giant cisterns on the roof and sometimes in large barrels for drinking water. As you can imagine, it was A, never enough, and B, most likely contaminated, so ended up doing more harm than good. It was dispensed the same way the food was, with a guard coming by the cells with a bucket and a ladle pouring out the contents of his bucket into the waiting hands of the prisoners. They would cup their hands and stick them through the bars of the cage and wait for whatever to be dropped into the makeshift bowl. Sometimes it was a thin broth, moldy rice, infested beans, and occasionally bread. As you can imagine, those trapped in the back never got a turn. The jail only had enough resources to feed approximately 250 inmates, and that was stretched as far as it could go. People were starving to death. Reports say that every square inch of the grounds was infested with vermin. There are those that would say that you could see the ground moving from all the infestation of bugs, rats, and other creatures living on the filth and the death. The prisoners living outside were expected to fend for themselves, so they were able to build their own fires, collect their own water, and lived on the rats and other creatures that were caught. Disease and the elements were the main cause of their demise. As for those on the inside... Overcrowding was listed as the leading cause of death in the inmate files. The old city jail was closed in 1939 because in order to bring it up to standards of what they finally believed to be humane treatment of prisoners in the 1930s, it would be too costly. So they just abandoned the building, creating another containment facility elsewhere. It's estimated that up to 14,000 people lost their lives while being held or working for the Old City Jail in the 136 years that it was in operation. The jail lay dormant for over 60 years before it was saved from crumbling to the ground by the American College of Building Arts in 2000. 
The antique building offered architectural craftsmen the best opportunities in the art of building preservation as the massive structure presented every type of challenge in its building materials. Brick, stucco, steel, stone, concrete, wood, metal, and learning about historical accuracy, keeping things looking authentic. Thanks to Hurricane Hugo removing huge chunks of the roofing, much of the wood and plaster were damaged. Luckily, the roof was replaced first to help stop continual damage from the weather, but since they used the building as a main renovation project and learning base, but also for their offices, things got off to a quick start. Founder of the School of Building Arts, John Paul Huguli, says of the task that was in front of them, quote, This building clearly of this time and period was all about quality and craftsmanship. The stone, the iron, the plaster, the masonry, the huge timber trusses, it was built to stand and has. Even through neglect and abuse, it has stood here, end quote. In 2016, they moved out to a new location and the Charleston jail was sold to a real estate company, Landmark Enterprises, who created Old City Jail, LLC. And today, at the release of this episode, the Old City Jail is under a complete refurbishing to transform it into office space. The folks who are sinking all this money into the property are hoping to keep a certain amount of the history present, but are completely modernizing and revamping the structure and interior. I hope they've added indoor plumbing, because that would be great. I can't help but wonder how their eternal residents feel about the upgrade. You have to know that being buried on top of thousands of dead bodies, hundreds and thousands of souls abused, tortured, and dying of horrible causes, there has to be some hauntings. And you know I have the inside scoop for you. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. Beyond the noises that come from aged creaking metal and settling, beyond the noises that can't be explained away by a breeze or a group member's misstep, unexplained thumps, footsteps, door slams, and items being drug across the floor have been heard ever since people have tried to cohabitate with the former residents. Ghosts have reportedly whispered intimately in your ear, sometimes even saying your name. Another who is attracted to sparkly jewelry has been known to brush against the dangling earrings or even tug on them. Others have felt the cold air, scratches, or even a sensation of being choked. Perhaps some of the retribution for their ill treatment, and perhaps others only want to be remembered for the short time that they walked on this earth. Others may be terrified of what lay beyond the curtain, while others, like Lavinia, may be locked out and have no choice but to remain. No matter what their reasons for not crossing over, there are plenty that still walk the halls of the old stone castle. We already talked about Ms. Lavinia Fisher and her husband and how she makes a regular appearance inside the jail to many of the tourists who follow their guide through the dark and damp hallways and peer through the rusty iron gates that block you from entering the rooms. But on those times when she is feeling shy and reserved, there are others who are happy to make their presence known. The Old City Jail, sometimes known as the Charleston Jail, is said to be one of the most haunted buildings of the South. With thousands of lost souls still trapped inside, it's no surprise that all of the mainstream paranormal shows have not gone away empty-handed. One who likes to make a regular appearance is Jeremiah. He is named by the staff as no records of him specifically can be found, but it is believed that he is the spirit of a nine-year-old slave child. He was considered very weak and sickly and no one would purchase him at the slave market. So the guards, or cooks, took him in feeling sorry for him, and he would have been helpful with tasks in order to earn his keep. Several children were to have been documented working within the administrative offices, the kitchen, and the morgue, where Jeremiah loves to hang out. He lets you know he's there by trying to reach out for your hand, 
Sometimes people will feel cold spots that only go waist high, or sometimes you can hear a small giggle bounce off the stone walls. But if he really wants to get your attention, he puts a pebble in your pocket. If Jeremiah is the nine-year-old boy they believe he is, he would have died at the jail of cholera. Denmark Vesey was an established carpenter and an active member of the AME African Church in Charleston. He was very active and vocal about his feelings of slavery, especially since hearing the debates going on surrounding bringing Missouri in as a state. It's alleged that he was spearheading an uprising, a slave revolt, on July 14, 1822, in which the slaves would take the lives of their masters. A group of both freed and enslaved men were to overtake the Charleston arsenal and use the weapons and ammunition in order to commandeer ships in a harbor to sail everyone who was able to make it to the docks to freedom in Haiti. There were two that decided to tell their master about the uprising. The mayor at the time, James Hamilton, organized a militia and suspects were rounded up. These suspects were taken to the city jail's workhouse where they were tortured and beaten until they gave up information and names. Thirty-five men were executed. Denmark Vesey was tortured and it is noted that he is the only man who never breathed a co-conspirator's name. He too, bloody and beaten, near to death, was then hanged in the gallows on July 2nd. Following the hanging deaths of Vesey, Another round of African Americans were gathered up and charged. An additional 131 black men plus four white men were charged with conspiracy. Many were convicted, some were deported, and some were executed. Even though the courts found it, quote, difficult to get conclusive evidence, end quote, it was more important to those in the government not so concerned of a fair trial to amplify the fear of a possible uprising, and Mayor Hamilton blamed the increase of slave literacy, Christianity, and misguided paternalism by masters towards slaves. The AME African Church was demolished, and the legislature passed the Negro Seamen Act. In case you are wondering how far I'm going down this rabbit hole, this is where the story comes back to the jail. This piece of legislation passed in 1822 now required that black sailors that arrived on ships in Charleston ports would be sent to the city jail for the entire time their ship was docked. They didn't want to see these sailors influencing the local slaves in any way while they were in town. When it came time for the ship to leave, the captain had to send word to the jail and the black sailors would be returned to their ships, providing they were leaving immediately. Ghost hunters believe that the spirit of Vesey, several members of the black community, and even members of the 54th Civil War Regiment, the all-black troop who were captured and held in the jail, are all making appearances in their afterlife. Since 2003, the old city jail has been open to tours. Guests were invited to walk on the original grounds and through parts of the jail. The stories are told of the famous inmates and extra spooky slants are added for ambiance. Charleston is one of my favorite places to visit as the history is so rich here. Good and bad, happy and sad. I think over the years I've done every single one of the ghost tours, but I love the old city jail. Its architecture is hauntingly beautiful and I'm so glad that they're trying to save it. And I will miss not being able to tour through it, but I can also honestly say that the grounds are teeming with energy and the inside, well, I am convinced that the residents don't realize that the cell doors have been unlocked for a while. And that would just about sum things up for this episode of Bag of Bones, unless you need just that tiny touch more. Hang on. I have one more facet about the old city jail from the annals of their history with crime and punishment. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. 
I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Executions were a common occurrence at the jail, and they were the fourth option the judge could take when pronouncing a sentence over a defendant brought up on criminal charges. Some sentencing was cut and dry. If you murdered someone, no matter the reason, that was an automatic hanging. They had a list. Some examples from that list would be offenses against public order, meaning riots or demonstrations, murder, rape, abduction and other sexual offenses, grand larceny, forgery of deeds, bonds, stamps, etc., arson, and piracy, to name just a few. Hundreds up into the thousands of hangings were carried out on the premises of the city jail. If you were to walk toward the back of the building, you'll see in the parking lot a definite depression in the gravel. They call it the crater and those who have worked as guides for the jail tours have said that it has been attempted to be filled for years, but the crater always shows itself again. This is where the gallows stood. The crater represents where a six-foot hole was dug into the ground that sat below the platform of the hanging arm. Joy says, quote, At the jail they used something called an upright jerker. Imagine a 20 to 25 foot pole with an 8 foot arm and a pulley system at the end of it. Hanging at the end of that pulley system was one end of a rope. That rope ended about 5 feet off the ground in a noose. End quote. A shed would have been built next to the pole and pulley system. Joy continues saying, quote, Inside the shed were four things. The executioner, a lever attached to the platform, the six-foot hole dug in the ground, and a 500-pound weight that was tied to the other end of the rope from the platform, end quote. So let me give you the visual here. The condemned prisoner would be brought to the platform, noose placed around their neck. Now, the platform wasn't that much higher than the ground level, so they could look face-to-face with those who were looking on. When it was time, the executioner would pull the lever. The platform would retract, dropping the 500-pound weight into the hole, literally launching the prisoner into the air. This would, most times, snap their neck on the way up, but if not, it got another chance on the way back down. Joy explains where additional problems came with this system. Quote, This worked for prisoners that were the average size of the time, around 5 foot 7 and 140 pounds. So if you were about 150, 160, you might die painlessly by having your neck snapped. But if you were on either side of that range, the more torturous and inhumane your death would be. Case in point. Daniel Duncan, July 7th, 1911 a 24-year-old black man that was the last man hanged on the grounds of the Old City Jail. It is believed that he was wrongly convicted of murder and robbery. Daniel weighed over 200 pounds. The hanging system was not built for a man of his weight, so when they pulled the lever, it didn't have enough force to kill him instantly. Instead, it took 39 minutes for him to die of strangulation while his feet hovered only 6 inches above the ground. So what would happen if your weight went in the opposite direction, say 90 to 120 pounds? In short, it would rip the head from the body. And 
one last story for your last story. No one wanted to be the executioner. It was one of the hardest jobs in the world. Sure, it may seem like your only job was to pull a lever, but can you imagine that every time you pulled a lever or pushed a button in your job, it meant someone died? That's a job that can really cause some mental and emotional strain. Most turned to alcohol to help buffer the stress. So eventually, the executioner, interestingly enough, was paid in whiskey. The warden would give him as much whiskey as he could drink, and on his time off, he was free to roam the city. But when executions were to happen, they would go out and find him, usually passed out somewhere, and drag him back to a cell in a specific room that he shared with the clergy, oddly enough, and wait for him to sober up. When he did, he would scream and yell and bang on the bars, demanding to be released. The prisoners would all hear his railings and knew that a list from their rankings were about to die. If the hangings went off without a hitch, meaning no one lost their head, literally, the process would begin again. Thank you for joining me once again this week for the latest episode of Bag of Bones. If this is your first episode, welcome. You've got some catching up to do. Next week is Bag of Bones' first anniversary, and I'm so excited to have made it this far, and I hope there are many, many more anniversaries to come. A quick thank you to everyone who has followed or subscribed. Thank you for everyone for leaving reviews or telling others about the podcast. And thank you to those listeners who suggested topics for the new shows of the new season. Eight have been chosen, and I can't wait for you to hear them. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.